Welcome to Lompoc Foursquare Church's podcast. Enjoy the message. Uh, as, as Pastor B said, we've been here, we've been here four weeks. I, I just want to say thank you to all of those of you who've made us feel so welcome and have educated us uh, in all things Lompokian. Um, you, you've done a great job at, at telling us, you know, where to go hang out and spend some time, um, the hot spots to eat. Uh, food is my first love. I'm sure you can't tell by looking at me. And um, so really appreciate all of that. Uh, there was one moment this week where I got a little confused. I, I was talking to somebody and you know, he, he stepped outside with me and he went which made me a bit nervous to begin with. I'm like, no, I don't think it's me. But he kind of goes, oh, yep, falls here. It's like, oh, shoot, falls here. Okay, jumped in my car, blazed over to our storage unit, pulled out all my rain gear. <laughs> and so the next day, you know, I, like, I got my boots, I got my rain jacket, I'm outside like, what's going on? It's 82 degrees. Where I've been living, when fall arrives, you, you turn in your car and pull out your pontoon boat. I'm, I, I've got this mean streak. Every day, we've got some friends from out of town visiting us this morning, uh, Brenda and Christy and Alyssa, and just about every other day, I text Christy's husband a picture of the palm trees and the sunshine and go, fall is really tough in Lompoc. I just can't handle the weather change. But seriously, thank you for making us feel very welcome. We feel very loved and well cared for. Um, last week, Pastor Bernie led us, left, uh, led us in a conversation about peace. And he extended an invitation for us to allow the peace of God to rule in our hearts. And he, he called that peace shalom. Shalom is kind of a, an image that God has of the way things should be. And this morning, we're going to open a new series into the book of Nehemiah. The book of Nehemiah tells the story of the shalom of God returning to a community that had lost it. And aren't you glad that God is better at returning peace to us than we are at holding on to it? He, he tends to do the heavy lifting in that regard, and for that I am very, very grateful, because right now, uh, lots of things going on around in the world that would want to steal our peace. I was thinking back as I was preparing for our time and remembering when I was kind of a rookie police chaplain in Washington, I think I'd been with the department for about a year and a half, and uh, we had an active shooter situation in one of our local apartment complexes, and a number of people tragically lost their lives before the police could respond to eliminate the threat, which they did quite uh, successfully. But we had now an apartment complex, a group of people who were completely peaceless. And my chief called me into his office, and he said, John, you know that thing that you do for our officers when they experience trauma? I said, oh, yeah, it's called a critical incident stress debrief. He goes, yeah, that. Uh, I want you to do that for the apartment complex. <laughs> okay, 150 people. Um, what do you do when your chief tells you to do something? You go, well, absolutely. Um, you know, so we figured out when we were going to do it. I walked out of his office around the corner, pulled out my phone, and called uh, Chaplain Rick Bowman, who'd been a chaplain for 30 years. I'm like, hey, Rick, uh, my chief just asked me to do uh, a critical incident stress debrief for an entire apartment complex. Is that possible? And he goes, theoretically. <laughs> I've never done it, but sure, go ahead. Like, <laughs> Super inspired now, Rick. Thank you. What do you do as an individual... When you experience a community, a group of people who are without peace, well, 
as a believer, you carry the spirit of God into each and every situation. So I just kind of went, I'm going to show up and see what Jesus does. And it's, it's a story for another day. But I, I walked into the city council chambers where we were meeting, and I just began to lead this community in a conversation that became so cathartic, so healing, that people who had walked in the room really traumatized and bound by fear and anxiety and confusion and isolation and alienation walked out, not with their peace fully restored, because sometimes it's a process, but with a sense of community and shared experience that they didn't have before. That was, that was an apartment complex. What do you do when an entire city has lost its peace? That's the book of Nehemiah. That's the story we're going to be telling together over the next several weeks. The, the story opens at a period of time in Israel's history where they are in complete and utter turmoil. As a matter of fact, they have found themselves in captivity yet again because a series of just really horrible decisions by their civic and religious leadership had led to some really, really painful circumstances. As a matter of fact, if you wanted to encapsulate the health and vitality of the nation of Israel around 586 BC, it would look like this. It is a house fire. And not like the roof is on fire, like it is burning down the house. Their, their hopes, their dreams, their goals, their desires have gone up in smoke. Everything they had built together, everything that they had accomplished is completely destroyed. How did they lose their peace? Like, did they misplace it? No. No, for these guys, it was completely taken from them, the city has been destroyed, like demolished, like the walls to the ground. The temple has been burned and its people have been taken captive and carried off into exile. And what you need to know about the nation of Israel is to have the walls of the city torn down is bad enough. But the temple, to have the temple destroyed, the temple for Israel was where heaven and earth met, where the presence of God dwelt among his people. It's, it's the place where sins were forgiven and, and blessing was bestowed. It's, it's where you could go seeking healing and, and where you would find provision. The temple, the presence of God is what set them apart as the people of God, and it has all been reduced to rubble. There is no peace. There is no hope. There is no future. There are only ashes. And what I want to do this morning with the time we have is I want to give you a bit of a history lesson. So if I start throwing a lot of information at you, don't feel like you have to write it all down or contain it all. But I need to paint a picture of what's going on at this particular time in history because as Pastor Bernie leads us through this series, having the understanding contextually of the history of Israel is going to be really, really helpful. And to really understand the book of Nehemiah, you also have to understand and remember what God was doing at another part of their time, of their history, something called the Exodus. So think back with me about 400 years ago, not ago, uh, about 600 years uh, earlier than this, uh, the nation of Israel has been in Egyptian captivity for 400 years. 400 years, and they're set free by God through a, a series of remarkable miracles. And you could say, John, isn't a miracle by definition remarkable? Uh, otherwise, it wouldn't be a miracle. It would just be ordinary. And I would say to you, yes, of course. However, in this particular instance, these are 10 miracles that are directly targeting 10 different Egyptian deities. And God is saying to Pharaoh, you've been messing with my people too long. It's time to let them go. So you line your gods up, and I'm going to knock them down. And that's exactly what he does through these 10 different miracles until finally Pharaoh says, just get out of town and take all our money with you. 
Great. God leads the people out of Egypt and into the desert and to this mountain called Mount Sinai. And there God does something incredible. He gives Israel a choice. Now, the reason this is remarkable is for the last 400 years, they have been slaves, and slaves are not given choices. The slave master does not walk into the slave quarters and say, hey, anybody feel like going to work today? Nah, we're going we're gonna to sleep in. You, you do what you're told as you're told to do it when it's given to you. But God leads them out there, and one of the very first things he does is he gives them a choice. And he says, guys, how do you want to live? What kind of people do you want to be? He says, I have an idea. I've led you out of captivity and into this promised land to be my treasured possession among the kingdoms. That's the language he uses. He says, I'm going to build you into a kingdom of priests. This is a remarkable change of status, right? From slave to priest, one who represents God in all he does. Here's how he says it. It's Ephesians 19, verse 5. He says, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant... Then out of all the nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. See, God's invitations always come with options. God doesn't just stamp stuff and say, this is the way it's going to be. He doesn't force us to do anything. He invites us into engaging relationships. So he says, here's what I'm, here's what I'm putting before you guys. What do you want to do about it? Would you like to be like me? Or would you like to be like the nations that enslaved you? If you're going to be my people, you need to act like my people, and I'm going to teach you how. Because you have a role to play. You follow my decrees, and you follow my commands. You and I, we have the same invitation. And here's, here's what he has to say about you and I in relation to the world around us. It is unchanged from Exodus 19. 1 Peter 2.9, Peter writes, you're a chosen people. And he's talking to you. You are a chosen people. You're a royal priesthood and a holy nation. You are God's special possession. That's how he sees you. That you may declare the praises. This is our, this is our role. That you might declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. Now, you and I know that with great privilege also comes both great opportunity and great responsibility. So when God gives Moses what we've come to know as the law of Moses, the Levitical law, the Ten Commandments, all of that, he isn't just setting up these indiscriminate rules for Moses. Do this, don't do that. No. God was providing for people who had been in slavery for 400 years a roadmap of what it looked like to be a kingdom of priests, what it looked like to be a chosen people. This is how God's people are meant to represent him to the world. It's how God's kids act. He was saying, when you're, when you're representing me, don't kill people. When you're representing me, don't covet. Don't steal stuff. Don't, don't worship other idols. Now, you and I may go, well, that's a no-brainer, but it wasn't for them. What does an Israelite slave living in Egypt do to survive? Whatever they have to. If there's not enough food for their family, they would probably steal it. And God is saying, this is how a slave responds. But you, you're now my children. And if you will trust me, I am going to lead you in a way that provides for you. Then he goes on. He says, but hey, if you don't want to, if you want to become like your neighbors, if you've decided that you don't want to be set apart, God says, I'm going to bring over you and bring over your king whom you set over you because you've decided you don't want me to be your king, 
I'm going to set over you a nation that neither you nor your fathers have ever known. In other words, there's going to be a house fire. You have to decide how you're going to want to live. See, God brought Israel out of slavery. But now he was going to bring slavery out of Israel. And he said, you can have it either way you want it. If you choose not to do it my way, it's not going to end up great for you. That was the Deuteronomy 28 passage I just shared. But God is faithful, and Scripture says his mercies are new every morning. So he, looking forward, says, listen, if this happens, if you decide to walk away and turn your back on me, I'm, if, if you cause a house fire, I'm going to send the fire department. And after I send the fire department, I'm going to send the reconstruction team, and we're going to rebuild this thing because... Because I'm always going to provide a way for you to walk out of the destruction that you create for yourself by the decisions you make. And we're going to see over and over in the book of Nehemiah the power that both confession and repentance have in a rebuilding process. This is not new to them in that moment. This goes back to the, the, the conversation as they're coming out of Egypt. God said to them in Deuteronomy 30, he says, listen, if, if, if you start burning down the house, if you make a house fire, if you will confess and repent, he, he said to them that he would restore their fortunes and have mercy on them. He said he would, he would gather them again from all the peoples where the Lord had scattered them. And, and he says to them, the Lord your God will bring you into the land that your forefathers possessed, that you too might possess it. This is a really common narrative in Scripture. Matter of fact, Joshua says the same thing. He says, listen, today I set before you life and death. Please choose life. If you choose life, you're going to live. If you choose death, meh. But they have the choice, as you and I have. Seems pretty straightforward. But time and time and time again, Israel would go, nope. Uh, We pick death. Thank you very much. It's easier to live like everyone else around us than to live as a people who have been set apart to represent God. Can anybody else give them an amen and a little bit of compassion? I understand that. There, there are a little secret into my life. There are some moments where I do find it's a lot more difficult to respond like Jesus than respond the way I want to. Sometimes my way feels like I'm going to punch you in the mouth. And, and if you've never had that thought, Jesus just dropped me down to Lompoc so you could disciple me. I, I am still a work in progress, um, but fortunately, I allow the work of the Spirit of God to temper that anger that wants to punch someone in the mouth, and I don't do that. I don't do that. A couple of you guys look on your face like, come on now. Come on now. I'm not sure. It's easier sometimes to respond the way everyone else responds around us, but God says, I've called you out to be a kingdom of priests. I've called you to be a holy nation. And so Israel, you know, time and time again, they're like, no, we're going to play with matches in the living room and see what happens. House catches fire. God steps into the mess to help them rebuild again. When, when God said to Israel in, in Exodus 19, you know, here's your choice. They're like, yeah, we're in. We're going to do it your way. And nope. Time and time again, they didn't. So let's fast forward out of Mount Sinai all the way up to about 1,000 B.C., Again, you don't need to write this stuff down, but it's really helpful to know where Israel has come. 1000 BC is about the high point in Israel's history. They have two of their greatest kings that they will ever have, a man named David and a man named Solomon. David collected together resources for the temple. Solomon built it. The glory of God comes to rest 
in the temple with such weight and power that the priests can't even stand to do their priestly duties. It is so significant at this period of time that other nations are aware of the favor of God around Jerusalem, and they send their learned peoples to learn from them. They have a central place of worship. They have a way to offer sacrifices and receive forgiveness. But then David passes away, and the kingdom goes to Solomon. Solomon rules, and then Solomon passes away, and then the wheels come off. Israel begins to descend into chaos and they start acting like they did before they ever had a king. They actually engage in a 200-year civil war, two tribes up north, 10 tribes down south, between the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. Looks like this. They have two places of worship, two different capitals, and yet they're supposed to be the single and unified people of God. Israel, the northern kingdom, is eventually uh, invaded by the Assyrian Empire. The people are not just scattered, they disappear. If you've ever heard the phrase, the lost tribes of Israel, it's because the purple or the blue or whatever that is up top, that disappears. Those people are completely dispersed throughout the world, never to assemble that way again. The southern kingdom, Judah holds on, but there is a progression of kings who refuse to follow the guidelines of the Lord and instead align with foreign kingdoms and foreign gods. And while Judah is barely hanging on, Assyria, who wiped out Israel, is engaged in a power struggle with the new kids on the block, another emerging empire called the Babylonian Empire. In 586 BC, King Nebuchadnezzar, if you've read the book of Daniel, you know that name. He's a Babylonian emperor. He conquers Assyria. They invade Judah. He destroys Jerusalem, burns the temple, and carries all of the people out into exile. This was a, a fairly standard practice when an empire would come in and, and conquer a nation. They would take the best of that nation away to their capital. So they would take the political and religious leaders, and they would leave just the poor and the impoverished. And then they would reach out throughout their empire, grab other disparate people groups, and bring them back to repopulate that area. So the only people left in Judah are the poor, the uneducated, and the displaced. It is no longer the land of promise it was meant to be. It is now more the island of misfit toys. What you need to know about Israel is their, their understanding of their status as the people of God was deeply tied to two things the land of their fathers, and the presence of the temple, both of which are suddenly gone. So, if you're keeping score at home, quick recap. <clears throat> Exodus 19, you have the promise. Um, Israel will be a nation of priests if they keep his commands. 1,000 B.C., King David, King Solomon, best there ever were. 957 B.C., the temple is dedicated. 931, 46 years after the temple is dedicated, the kingdom is divided. 722, Assyria invades Israel. 586, Babylon invades Judah, and we have a house fire. Done. That's how we got here. But here's the thing about God. The story is never over when we think it's over. See, 50 years after Assyria falls to Babylon, Babylon falls to the Persian Empire. I know it's starting to feel like high school world history. I'm sorry. <laughs> I will not give you a pop quiz, I promise. Uh, just stay with me for one more second because we're going to land this plane. Here's the deal. Guys, God doesn't watch history. God writes history. 
He is intimately engaged every single moment of every single day. He is writing history right now in our midst. And God is committed to his creation, its preservation, and its restoration. So when it looks like things might be getting off track, God is prepared to put things back in order. How do I know that? Simple. Way back in 740 BC, I know, another date, 164 years A century and a half plus before Judah ever falls to Babylon, God speaks a promise to a man named Isaiah in the city of Jerusalem. And here's what he says. I am the Lord who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd. He shall fulfill my purpose, saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built. And of the temple, your foundation shall be laid. Now, Isaiah is bringing this prophetic word from the Lord, but he's probably thinking, who the heck is Cyrus? I don't know any Cyrus. That's not a Jewish name. Why would he be involved in shepherding the people of Israel? God knew a Cyrus. God could look 164 years into the future at what his people would need and begin the process of providing for them even then. When Persia conquered Babylon and took control of Palestine and the Jewish people, do you know who was ruling the Persian Empire? Yeah, this is a give you guys. This is the easiest question I will ever ask you. Man named Cyrus II. So before the temple is ever destroyed, God speaks of a man named Cyrus who would shepherd his people to rebuild the temple. God doesn't leave things in disorder, and he doesn't leave walls broken down. So even when it looks like things are falling apart, God has orchestrated and arranged the way to rebuild and to restore because he is a God of restoration and resurrection. So all of this brings us to the book of Nehemiah, a book about the rebuilding of the temple, the rebuilding of the city of Jerusalem, and the rebuilding of the people of God. Because church, God does not give up on the people or the places that he loves. Anybody want to say thank you, Jesus, for that one? Because there's been a time or two he could have given up on me. But God doesn't give up on the people or the places that he loves. Instead, he commissions people to join him in his work of renewal, of restoration, and of rebuilding. He looks for men, he looks for women who have the heart and focus of the prophet Isaiah, who when they understand God is preparing to work, say, here I am, send me. God, I'm in. I'll go. Cyrus issues a ruling that says, I think everybody should be able to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. And and while I'm thinking about it, I think I'm going to finance it. Assyria had stolen all of the objects of worship from the temple. Well, Cyrus conquered Assyria, so he just goes into the storehouse, pulls it all back, gives it to a guy named Zerubbabel, and goes, hey, go rebuild the temple and start worshiping your God. A pagan. Let me tell you guys, there's nothing that God can't do. It's not over until God says it's over. And God doesn't say it's over. God says, end of the book, Revelation, behold, I am making all things new. Which means wherever you are in the process of whatever is being rebuilt, God's not done. If you're looking at a dream that you feel like has died, can I just remind you this morning that you serve the God of the resurrection? That when, when you look at a situation and said, there is no life back in that, it, it's, it's dead, it's buried, it's cooked, God the Father goes, can I tell you about my son in three days in a tomb and what I did at the end of that? that? God's 
God chooses to restore the city of Jerusalem, so he starts sending people. First, he sends a guy named Zerubbabel, gives him 50,000 people, says, go to it. Zerubbabel goes back, and he begins the process of rebuilding the temple, and wouldn't you know it, people aren't happy about it. Those people that had been left, some that, that didn't know the God of Israel and some who felt maybe abandoned by the God of Israel, they were not really excited that Zerubbabel was set up as governor and that he was going to rebuild the temple. So they were actively engaged in resisting the rebuilding of the temple and Zerubbabel in particular. Zerubbabel didn't quit. Can I just remind you this morning of something I know that you already know? If the work of God in your life is being resisted, it's not because God is not present and is not engaged. It's because there is an enemy of your soul that would love to discourage you and thwart the work of God in your life, in your family, in your workplace, and in your community. Resistance does not mean the absence of God. As a matter of fact, it may very well mean that you are directly in the plans and the purposes of God. I had a friend tell me one day, he said, John, if the devil isn't hitting you head on, you're probably both going in the same direction. I called him a jerk. I didn't want to hear that. But it's true. This is Zerubbabel's experience. There is immediate pushback to the work of God in that area. And some of us this morning probably need to be reminded that the resistance we are experiencing is not natural, it's spiritual. So what do you do when you are walking in the plans and the purposes of God to the best of your ability and you experience, you experience resistance? Can I encourage you, don't redirect, don't get knocked off course, simply recommit. And if something about what I am sharing is starting to wake something up inside of you, like, oh, you know what, maybe that's not just me. You may need to look the devil in the eye this morning and say, honey, you poked the wrong bear. You done woke me up, and you probably should have let sleeping dogs lie because now I'm coming after you. Because I understand that there is an assignment upon my life to live as a redemptive person in the kingdom of God. And I understand that God's plans and purposes for my family, my church, my community may very well find their beginning in me. Because now, according to Acts chapter 2, I carry the Spirit of God wherever I go. So sucker, you just made a mistake. As a matter of fact, that word I heard from Pastor Bernie last week about revival coming to my church, my family, my community, I'm not going to sit back and watch that happen. I am doubling down. And where you thought you were going to knock me off my course, I am fully committed to the work of God in my life, in my community, and I'm coming after you in Jesus' name. Let me tell you something about something. Sometimes we just got to let Jesus lead us through. And I get excited when I talk about that, but please don't misunderstand me. I'm not talking about getting all hyped up and doing something our own strength. But I am talking about what happens when we understand our birthright, that we are, in fact, a kingdom of priests, that we are, in fact, a royal priesthood, that we have been commissioned to stand between God and mankind and minister on his behalf, that in the same way where we carry the Spirit of God as the Spirit of God rested in the temple, that means wherever we are, heaven and earth meet. 
And so God can send me into any situation, any circumstance, any area of brokenness. And as long as I have a posture before him that says, here I am, send me, he will. And he will do exceedingly and abundantly in you and through you more than you could ever ask or imagine. I gave that to you this morning for free. That's not in my notes. <laughs> you, you might need to call the guys that came to nine and went, well, ah, 1045 is the place to be. For all of his passion, Zerubbabel gets the temple built. takes him about 20 years. He can't rebuild the wall. Doesn't get it done. God sends a man named Nehemiah about 93 years later. And what Zerubbabel couldn't do in that intervening century, Nehemiah did in 52 days. Took him 52 days to gather the people and build the walls. What people say can't be done in a century, God can do in a moment. And he just got there because one day he got news that the city was in disarray and it really bothered him. He was the cupbearer for the king, he had a really weird job. Uh, his job was to eat and drink and people would watch him and see if he died. Uh, if he died, they said, yeah, king, don't eat that. If he lived, they said, yeah, king, it's okay. He wasn't a priest, wasn't a pastor, wasn't a politician, wasn't a soldier. He was just a man in the court of the king who got news from Jerusalem that the city walls were in disarray. And he went, yeah, it's not God's best for that city. And I'm not okay with that. He began to pray. And then that compassion compelled him to action. And somewhere in that correlation between a spirit moved by the heart of God and a posture of obedience before God, things happened that hadn't happened in the preceding century. These are some of the things we're going to get to talk about together over the next eight weeks. And, and I don't want to steal Pastor Bernie's thunder for when he teaches. And to be honest, I don't want to steal my thunder for when I get to teach. But I do want to, I do want to give you a couple of things to hang your hat on and, and to look forward to as we walk through the book of Nehemiah. I already, I already gave one of them away. 52 days. God can do at a moment what man can't do in a lifetime. Nehemiah was a man of prayer. There are 13 chapters in the book of Nehemiah and 14 recorded prayers. Before he responded, before he moved, he would simply posture himself before the Lord and pour out his heart and then listen, and then he would do. In the story of the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem, every single person had a part. You read chapter three, and it is a list of name after name after name of families who have been recorded for posterity as people who gave themselves to the work of God in the city. And the diversity is incredible. You have priests and you have perfume makers, literally. Everyone played a part. 18 times, it says in chapter three, as it's giving these names, and next to them, and next to them, as if Nehemiah is reminding us that what we can do individually aligned with the Spirit of God is powerful, but what we can do collectively is indescribable. And this community of faith gathered together in common cause to help a city heal. When Nehemiah rebuilds the city, God rebuilds the people. Physical renewal is a precursor oftentimes to spiritual renewal whether it's Jesus healing a leper or Nehemiah healing a city. It begins with felt need, with physical need. And when people come to a place of safety, a man named Ezra begins to speak about the word and the promises of God. And that entire city is ignited in what is nothing short of a revival. 
The same can be true for us, guys. Here's how I know. Hebrews 13.8. Jesus Christ is the same when? And what he did then, he can do today, and he wants to do again tomorrow. So I want to invite you to keep three words in mind as we walk through this book together. Rebuild, renew, restore. This is the message of the gospel, and it's the message of the book of Nehemiah. Rebuild, renew, restore. God rebuilds the walls of the city. He renews the hearts of the people, and he restores hope for the future. As you look around our city, as you think about your family, as you think about your church, what might need to be rebuilt? What needs to be renewed? What is in, in just crying out for restoration? What might, be, what might God be inviting you to put your hand to in response to what you see? Let, let, me, let me just tell you, guys, if you'll look for it, you'll see it. And when you see it, God will allow you the privilege of partnering with his spirit to be the answer to the devastation you see. You are a rebuilder and you are a renewer and you are a restorer if you have surrendered your life to Christ. You know, it's really easy for me to look outside and go, here's what needs to be fixed and here's what needs to be fixed. Do you know what's a little less fun for me? Well, no, I'm fixing it. I like fixing it. I don't like looking inward. Easy for me to do. That needs to be fixed. It's a lot less fun to go. But that's part of the process too. So as you think through the last 18 months with your eyes turned inward, are there things there that God might want to renew or restore or rebuild? Spiritual disciplines maybe that need to be rediscovered or hope needing to be reborn. God will do that. If you need hope, if you need peace, if you need joy, he'll do that. If you're open to being invited to become an agent of restoration and hope along with him, he's going to do that. He'll do it in you, and then he's going to do it through you. But you know what he won't do? He won't do it without you. I mean, he could. He could go all Genesis 1 on us and go, the Lord said, and it was. But as God builds cities through us, he's building us. And he doesn't want you to miss out on that. In a few minutes, we're going to sing again. And uh, in that moment, I want to invite you to raise a hallelujah over the places God puts on your heart that need to be rebuilt. We're going to be singing a song, but as, as in David's day, we're going to be singing a prayer. And I believe that as we sing over our city, over our families, over our church, some dreams are going to begin to come alive and God's going to give us some direction. But first, I want to pray for us. God, you are so good to us that you never, you never leave us, you never forsake us, and, and you won't allow brokenness to be a deterrent. Lord, you redeem and you restore it. You bring healing where there's been devastation. And God, some of us this morning might be looking at rubble that only we can see. Looks good on the outside. But if we were honest about the kind of hurt or pain or discouragement or anxiety that we're carrying, it would really surprise the people around us. But you see that. And you're moving even now to bring healing and restoration. Lord, where we're walking through some some rubble, some devastation that's kind of our own doing, like Israel, we've just said, yeah, no thanks. We're going to do it our way. We remember that it's your kindness that leads us to repentance and your power that will help us rebuild. 
So show us the places where we wake, where we worship, or where we work that that you want to renew, you want to rebuild, and you want to restore. Holy Spirit, we invite you in the weeks ahead to move in us and to move through us, that we might become the agents of restoration that you have called us to be as we experience ourselves the restoration that you offer. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thanks, guys. Let's just keep following Jesus and looking for those places that he wants to work in us and places he wants to work through us. We hope you enjoyed today's message. Please visit us at mylfc.com for more information about our church. Thank you so much for listening.